Dear listeners, welcome everybody to a new episode of Labor ins Ohr, the podcast where we look over the shoulders of giants to reveal the secrets of science. What does this actually mean? Well, we're a science podcast, but we're not going to talk about research topics. Instead, we want to contribute to current discussions and shed light onto topics which concern many scientists of different areas. And I'd like to introduce our guest of today, Johan Rorik. He's a visiting professor of linguistics at the Leiden University in the Netherlands. He's published over 70 scholarly articles, wrote two books himself and helped editing a multitude more. His main research interest is about the interaction between morphology, syntax and semantics and the relation between language and the core knowledge system. Although it would be very interesting to talk with him about his works in linguistics, we are going to focus on his ideas and really remarkable contributions for the open access in, the, in, in this interview. In fact, he is currently president of the FAIR Open Access Alliance and the Linguistics in Open Access. Additionally, he is the executive director of the Coalition S, which is one of the most influential and internationally connected organizations for the advancement of open research. Thank you for joining us in this episode of our Open Access series. Glad to be here. With the linguistics and open access, you personally experienced how hard a transition of a subscription-based model to a fully open access model can be, especially as you were not the owner but only the editor of the journal. I'm talking about the journal Lingua for general linguistics, which is owned by Elsevier and which led to a foundation of a totally new journal called Glossa, where you're currently the editor-in-chief. But maybe you can tell us more about this story and the dispute you had with Elsevier during the transformation. Uh, yes, um, so in, in, in 2015, uh, we decided, and with, with me, I mean the editorial uh, team and the editorial board, we decided that we wanted to uh, change our relationship with uh, uh, Elsevier. And uh, so we asked them for ownership of the journal and um, and for reasonable prices in open, open access articles, to which they did not go along with. And um, as a result, we decided that we would uh, leave, um, uh, leave, leave Elsevier, leave the journal behind, because we see the, the journal simply as a, as a vessel, so to speak, for a community, and uh, found a new journal that would be in uh, our own hands as scholars, that we would be responsible for. Um, and uh, 
what was uh, surprising to me is, in fact, the entire community did uh, move over. I mean, it was also done with the help of social media, of course, and a number of linguists who who pushed very much behind the scenes to make this happen. But basically what happened is that the entire community of uh, authors, reviewers, editors moved over from the old uh, journal that was a commercial journal with Elsevier to a new journal that was completely in the hands of the scientific community and uh, in completely an open access and not only in open access but also in diamond open access. It is true that we ask um, uh, authors who can make a contribution to to make a contribution when, but only if they have uh, dedicated funds for this purpose. Um, um, and uh, otherwise, it's it's free for all authors who uh, come, and it's also free to read. And uh, the journal, our the new journal, was very successful. I think. I mean, within a year, we had sort of recovered the, the number of articles that we used to publish before. So what we saw, what I learned to my surprise, is that in fact the impact and the visibility of such a journal sort of resonates for five years after the transition. And that was a bit of a lesson. I mean, now that has been arranged because now we are, we have clearly demonstrated that Glossa is um, uh, completely back. We now have an impact factor for those who are interested in that sort of thing. We, we, not, we are not really interested in that. But also in Google, in Google Scholar, we have recovered, um, we have recovered our standing. And uh, the journal Lingua has gone down a lot in, in, in that standing. So in terms of visibility, we, we, uh, we have yeah, provided proof of concept that you can transition uh, a journal from a commercial publisher to a new venue if the community decides to do that and is completely united in its willingness to uh, take on uh, that, that challenge. Yes. Well, it seems like you had success with your transition, but maybe according to Elsevier, they were not so happy about all of this. You had some very harsh conditions for them to uh, solve. Well, maybe maybe that is the case, but um, we think that these conditions were not any more harsh than the ones that we held ourselves to in the new in the new journal. It it is true, of course, that we um, did not expect uh, Elsevier to be uh, extremely enthusiastic about our proposal. Uh, they see the journal in a very different way. Of course, for them, the journal is is an asset. Right, a financial asset, and that, and that's it. For us, the journal is a community. So these are two very different perspectives on what a journal should be: an asset to make money for your shareholders, or uh, a forum where reviewers, authors, and editors meet to discuss to discuss linguistics. And I think that that was at the core of the the dispute. We had a completely different perspective on 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 what that would what the journal would be, and how it how it should be run. We think that the journal and the decision-making at the journal should be in the hands of the academic community. Uh, they think that that should be in the hands of, uh, of the publisher. Um, so, so these are very different perspectives on, on, on academic publishing. Um, also in terms of price, we, we thought prices should be, should be lower than what they were at, at, at Elsevier. And we have shown that it is entirely possible to run a journal with these uh, lower prices. Um, because of course our operations also cost money 
Uh, we are now with the Open Library of Humanities. We uh, used to be with uh, uh, Ubiquity Press. Uh, they also charge prices. These, those were carried by the funds of the transition on the one hand and the Open Library uh, of Humanities on the other. But those prices were much lower than the article processing charges that Elsevier was and is charging right now. So, so yes, I think um, the dispute was m mainly about, you know, the respective responsibilities and, uh, and, and, and the finances that you can charge for running a, a journal. Since then, you have transitioned a total of four linguistic journals with the Ling Open Access. Yes with the, yes, with the other journals, of course, it was a lot easier because in those cases, those journals were already in the hands of the, of the community. So there was a journal called Laboratory Phonology. That title was in the hands of an association for laboratory phonology. So they could simply change providers. This was also the case for the two other journals. These were simply in the hands of, of, of a library, respectively, and, uh, and, an individual, uh, and an individual. So that was much easier, in a way. For us, it was um, a bit harder because the title was in the hands of, of Elsevier. And it is true that Elsevier kept the title and managed to find a new editorial board and an editor. Uh, they had to completely change the aims and scope of the journal. To, uh, they had to become a much wider journal. And yes, I, I regret to say that the, the quality of the articles there has, has gone down quite a bit. And you don't have to believe me, you can ask any linguist, um, except of course for the people who are publishing there. <laughs> but, um, but if you look at, if, if you look at uh, Google Scholar, for instance, uh, you look at um, the, the, the standing in Google Scholar, we have now risen to number eight in language and linguistics. And Lingua has disappeared from the top 20, which they, where they used to occupy a, a position of around 10 or 14 uh, for, for a long time. And so now we reoccupy the place that is rightfully ours, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah, well, these are very interesting examples. And you mentioned several points we want to dig into in more detail. But maybe we switch a little bit and talk about these concepts and aspects more generally. What I mean is I want to talk about Plan S. Yes. Because for those of our listeners who have followed us all the four episodes along, they already heard the name Plan S quite often. And we always took it for granted that everybody of Uh, our listeners knows what it is about but i just want to take this amazing opportunity that we have you here and it's really a pleasure johan and i want to ask you can you maybe just briefly explain to our listeners what plan s is about yes plan s it has one simple very simple goal actually it's it's it has it, it is a one moonshot uh, kind of initiative it simply says the following All research outputs that are peer-reviewed and that are, have been financed with public money need to be made available open access one way or another. So that means either in gold open access where you pay or in a repository where you don't pay usually or in a transformative agreement where the library pays. So it's, it's not an initiative that prevents 
researchers from uh, publishing in specific journals. No, as a researcher, you can publish where you want. The only condition is that if you are financed by a Coalition S funder, it includes about 27 organizations, um, 27 organizations that have pledged that they will implement Plan S uh, in their policies, and those uh, that, that one single goal, the goal of making all research outputs that are financed by Coalition S open access, is implemented with uh, 10 principles. So there are certain things that we will pay for, for instance, we indeed we will pay for gold open access articles, uh, but we will not pay, for instance, for articles in hybrid journals, because we think hybrid journals have not contributed to the transition to open access. So basically what Plan S does and what Coalition S does is use the money of the research funds that they give to researchers, use that money as a uh, a wedge as a as as a force to move the entire publishing system as much as possible towards open access. That is that is the avowed goal. Of course, the publishers don't like this because uh, the subscriptions that they have afford them enormous uh, profits. But of course, they want to keep uh, things as they are. The way the, I I uh, I compare it always to uh, uh, smartphones and dumb phones. I mean, if if the publishers, if academic publishers uh, were to make phones, we would probably still be phoning with 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 machines uh, from the beginning of the uh, the two thousands instead of smartphones. Uh, the, the 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 techniques, everything is ready to to do open access. Even the financial models are there to do open access in a decent way, and they are simply refusing to move. Thank you very much. Before we talk more about uh, the the content of Plan S, and you already mentioned several points, we, which we will discuss later, can you just also answer one last question about the motivation to start such an initiative? Who started it, and at which point did you get involved? Ah, yes, of course. Um, well, it was started by um, Robert Jan Smits and uh, Mark Schiltz. Mark Schultz, as you know, is the president of Science Europe, an organization of um, uh, European funders with funding agencies. Uh, um, Robert Jan Smits at the time was commissioner at the, at the Commission for Research and Innovation. And they both had this idea that something had to give, something had to move. I mean, you know, we had been talking about open access for 20 years and uh, there was this feeling that it was very much uh, a, a, a discussion among, um, uh, among, uh, people who uh, among grassroots people, grassroots organizations, grassroots scholars who wanted to realize open access. And we, they also saw that, in fact, in, this was we're now talking 2018, uh, that there had been a kind of a leveling out of, of, the, of the transition to open access. One of the things we saw, for instance, is that in hybrid journals, so these, these, these are journals that have part of their content under subscription and part of their content in open access, the penetration of open access was only 
And so, you know, if you made a prognosis about that, about when we would achieve complete open access, you would have to wait another hundred years before complete open access was achieved. Uh, also, this hybrid open access afforded enormous opportunities to uh, publishers to do double dipping and to take profits both from subscription and from open access. And they simply didn't want that anymore. They said, we need, uh, we need to take our responsibility as funders and we need to move forward and make sure that everything is open access. An example that I'll give you, for instance, in this context is very important. Um, for instance, recently, uh, monkeypox, right? Monkeypox virus. The several agencies have now again asked uh, on their knees, very gently, the publishers to make open access those articles that 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 uh, hand that are about uh, monkeypox virus. This is the fourth time in about seven years that this has happened. It has happened before for Ebola. It has happened before for the COVID-19. So how many more times will we have to ask uh, the uh, the, the, the publisher to make this research open access. This is the kind of frustration that the funders were facing. So the funders use public money, pub, pu public money meaning money from the taxpayer, that they invest in research and the outputs of that research then disappear without, uh, behind the paywall without the taxpayer being able to have access to that, uh, that research. That is simply not fair. It's not a good return on investment. So the reason that the research agencies did this was to have a better research uh, return on investment on their investment in science. And of course, when I got involved, I mean, in 2008, uh, uh, this was in 2019, I saw that the position became available and I thought, um, I have to do this because uh, I, my impression uh, also was that I could uh, bring something to, to this because, I mean, these were mainly... Uh, uh, research, these were mainly funders from the medical field because, of course, in the medical field, the, the urgency of op for open access, as I said, for these epi epidemics uh, is, is, is much more keenly felt than in other domains. But I thought that this had to be broadened, that it was important for them also to have someone from the humanities, uh, a voice from the humanities, and also someone who had experience as an editor. One of the things that I see on a daily basis is since I have my feet planted in the mud uh, as an editor, and I do editing every day, I know exactly the kind of challenges that, that you have as, a, as an editor, as an author, as a reviewer, and I thought that that perspective could also help um, plan as, and uh, I think that, yeah, that, uh, that, that was useful. I, I, at least I hope it was, yeah. Given all those valid points that you made, the question that comes up is why did this not happen any earlier <laughs> yes that is a good question yeah. i mean the serious crisis is going on since the 90s basically Ab absolutely i i think you're absolutely right this should of course have happened 20 years ago i think this was just a, a, a coincidence, I think. I think it was also perhaps a coincidence of, of a new generation uh, coming to uh, into the leadership of, of these research agencies. Uh, Mark Schultz is, is about 10 years younger than I am, I believe. Uh, so, you know, these, the, these, the new, for the new generation, open access is much more self-evident. It's much more something that that goes without saying. I mean, it's, and that it is a waste of money not to, not to do it. So I do see a, a generational difference. I think probably that's what it took to, um, 
to to move things forward. And I think also a general frustration. I mean, for a long time, I think a number of people, uh, especially in research agencies, thought that open access would just just happen. Well, uh, hybrid journals certainly were thought by a number of people to be a solution uh, for transitioning uh, uh, subscription journals to open access and of course you have to give such an initiative time right i mean uh, hybrid journals have been around since the beginning 2000s i believe uh, and then of course you know it takes a while before you see that in fact it's never going to happen <laughs> and that the, this is the frustration i think that that came to light in 2018 the realization that hey you know hybrid open access is not going to to, to manage the transition we are going to be stuck in this mode mode for for another 50 years this is not uh, this is not how we want things to be in one of our previous episodes we also talked with alexandra elbakian the founder of sci-hub do you think also that maybe this research platform had oh def definitely absolutely yes uh, that that definitely had something to do with it uh, i mean of course uh, the 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 sci-hub platform is is uh, is illegal um, it is a uh, but i see it mainly as as a form of uh, civil disobedience uh, it it certainly had something to do with it if if you see that such uh, let's say rather extreme measures are necessary to make the research record available. Uh, you, the, you know, people who are in power are a little bit embarrassed by that, right? Because it really shows that they have not taken the responsibility that they, that they should have taken. We should take our responsibility and make sure that going forward all uh, research outputs are, are made open access in a legal way. It's completely possible to do it in a legal way. So now why not? Why not move towards that? But there is also another problem which comes with it, with gold open access especially, which are the APCs. Absolutely, yes. In, in the principle number five of the plan, plan S, it says that the structure of such fees must be transparent to inform the market and facilitate the pos potential standardization and capping of payments of fees. Talking of such a price cap, um, can you tell us why it would be desirable and then also how you could possibly enforce it then? What we have done is we have insisted a lot on price transparency. So as you may know, for instance, the last few months we have built a journal comparison service. So that journal comparison service uh, will make uh, allows or enables publishers to make their prices uh, transparent according to two uh, formats that they can use for this purpose. The journal comparison service is not accessible to, to everyone, unfortunately, because a lot of publishers insisted that this was proprietary information that they did not want to share out in the open with everyone. So the, we have made a service that is protected with two-factor authentication. And so this means that librarians and funders and people who are negotiating these prices will have access to it, but not everyone, uh, not everyone. That's unfortunate, I think, but okay. I mean, I think as a first step towards uh, transparency, um, you have to have this paradoxical situation where you have a a journal comparison service that offers price transparency without being itself transparent. But it's a first step. 
So we invite all the publishers to to do this. We will see uh, how they how they react to 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 this now. Uh, with respect to a price cap, we have had a lot of discussions about that within the coalition, and and we think that in fact it is not a good idea uh, to immediately in, impose a price cap. The problem with the price cap is that if you impose a price cap, then everybody is going to either rise to that cap or take that cap as a as the beginning of a negotiation with the author. This is why we believe it's much better that there is a that people are able to see the 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 prices that are charged for specific services that we start there. I must also say that we have I mean yeah if if the publishers do not uh, do do not participate in this we will reconsider our uh, position and we will reconsider whether we want to continue collaborating with such uh, with such publishers. In that context as well, we've developed initiatives in, in, in different directions, as you may know. We have now also developed uh, uh, plans and, and projects in, to reinforce uh, Diamond Open Access Publishing. Uh, so, this, uh, as you know, Diamond Open Access Publishing does not charge authors or readers for uh, publication. This is a big project that is starting now in September, the Diamas project. There is another project that uh, looks at the infrastructure for uh, Diamond uh, Open Access Journals in Europe. That is called the Kraft OE uh, project, which is actually directed by uh, the University Library of Göttingen in Germany. And that, as you know, is a, a model of publishing that is very near to my heart. I think the reason that this is important is that those journals, with the proper guidance and proper uh, quality control, those Diamond Journals in Europe could very easily become... Uh, uh, important competition for the commercial, uh, uh, the com more commercial journals and help in driving prices down. Uh, that is at least my hope. Again, you know, this is not something that will be realized tomorrow. We will need five, five to ten years to do this, but it can happen. Yeah. I, I also see a lot of potential in the diamond open access. And in, in fact, it was one of our questions why the plan S focused so much on gold open access but i guess you you answered it that now you're taking steps toward more when you roll out such a plan you can't do everything at the same time i think one of the strong points of plan as that i saw and that this is also the reason i applied for the job as executive director is that it is an all-encompassing plan it doesn't think that there is a single silver bullet to achieve open access it basically addresses all the moving parts of the game And I understand why they first focused on gold open access, because, of course, uh, the, the force of the uh, research agencies is their money. They can say to researchers, you can use our money for this purpose and not for this other purpose. Right. And that's a big force. And so I think in the beginning, Coalition S and Plan S play to their strengths, which is, look, we have this amount of money and publishers, please be aware Our researchers will only be, use, be able to use that money for specific types of outputs. So gold, yes, but no, no longer hybrid. That's over. We no, we no longer play that game. Due to Plan S, where you plan to reduce the article processing charges, I think many of the high rejection journals have uh, a lot of problems with it. I mean, Springer Nature, they estimated in 2019 that it costs on average about 10,000 to 30,000 uh, euros for them to publish an article. And given their current uh, APC 
of 9,500 euro, they're already operating at a loss basically. And would you say that is this necessary for them to look for an alternative business model or what kind of alternative could you give them? I, I definitely think they should look for a different business model. I mean, I do not think that highly selective journals uh, are beneficial to science. I mean, this creates an artificial situation where prestige is associated with high rejection rate. But nobody is going to tell me that, you know, if you have a journal that rejects 92% of research, that 92% of research submitted to, to nature is, is bad. The only thing that you achieve by doing that is slowing down science, right? So basically what we need to get rid of, and, and we are more and more thinking in that direction in Coalition S as well, what you have to get rid of is this highly selective model of, of publication and the prestige model of publication. I mean, there is no, there's no reason at all why uh, the pub publications should be predicated on a, on a game of competition and prestige. Would it, is it really the case that the 8% that Springer Nature retains is, is, the, is the best science? We also know that these high rejection rate uh, journals also have the highest uh, retraction rates. Uh, so clearly something, something is wrong there. But don't you think that those high-impact journals are needed to give an overview also to neighboring disciplines? When I take a look at uh, my field, for example, there are literally uh, hundreds of uh, experiments coming out every week or so, and you can't keep up with all the research in the neighboring fields as well. Yeah, but that's a, that's a different... I, I think that's a different service. I think there's different... We, we have to think of science in terms of different services. I mean, you you can perform that service of making an overview uh, of different fields as a kind of a curation service. So that would basically be another business model where you have a model of a scientific journal that is, let's say, a little bit more selective and, or a little bit more broader and a little bit more technical than, for instance, Scientific American, right? Uh, where you would give these, give these kinds of overviews. So that's a more of a curation service. You don't need to have peer-reviewed articles to give you that. So we, we think that you it should move much more to a, to a situation where all research is published as soon as the author thinks that it's ready to be published. And then a discussion starts. It's only then that the review starts and reviews start and the article begins to make its name and then of course on top on top of that system where everything is published immediately and where reviews take place you can have editors like the ones at Springer Nature and at Science and, and at Science who sort of have an, an overview of the field and pick and choose articles that they do not necessarily publish, but that they make a synthesis of, of an, or an overview articles that give overviews to specific disciplines or to people from other disciplines. But that's a different service. Has Nature actually already entered its data in your journal comparison service? No, they have not. <laughs> no. Ah, what a pity. Would be interesting. Yes, we are. We are very keenly interested in what they uh, what they would do. Uh, but you, you know, I mean, I'm not. I'm not entirely surprised by this ten thousand euro APC. I mean, I mean, when this came out, everybody was scandalized. But in fact, let's not forget the only thing Springer Nature does. This is going to sound very strange, as if I'm defending Springer Nature, but but it's not. Uh, let me explain. 
all they did was basically recalculate the cost that they are already charging universities for spring and for the nature journals right now and that is in subscription to recalculate that to uh, an open access fee and so they came out on this price of 10,000 that everybody is so scandalized by but everybody is scandalized but everybody at the same time conveniently forgets that this price was already paid in subscription by the library and of course the library is like plumbing right you don't see it and as long as you don't as long as the plumbing functions you're happy and you don't think about it. You don't think about the price of plumbing. But the librarians knew. Now suddenly the, the individual researcher is faced with an APC of, of 10,000 euros and suddenly it's a scandal. But the librarians have, have been paying this for us for, for years. We talked about this high rejection rate journals. Now let's look at different journals because, for example, many scholarly societies also publish their own journals and many of those journals are in fact hybrid journals and many of the societies complained about plan s for example the society of german chemists did now did you include those societies in the decision making process no we did not because it's not our remit. We have nothing to say over societies. And also societies are part of the problem, to, to be very honest. What societies did in the last 20 years is they grew, uh, they grew fat and, and happy on the money, on the money that was provided to them by the, by the commercial publishers. Before this was not the case. Before uh, society, before, let's say, 30 years ago, societies published their own journals. They were responsible for their own journals and they did not derive these huge uh, profits. Uh, today, it is true that many societies Uh, live off and have their operations uh, functioning on the basis of the revenues that they get from the commercial publishers. Now, in my opinion, it is not the task of a society to, uh, to use the revenue from their journal as an income stream uh, for, uh, for their operations. Uh, and this is something that they will have to wean themselves off of. But I agree with you, there is a problem there. But it was a problem that we were not going to solve by entering into a discussion with, uh, uh, with the societies because, precisely because these societies were, uh, found this income from the subscription journals, from the subscriptions of their, uh, of their journals, easy money. So, so indeed, uh, we, we get a lot of criticism. But let's not forget why we get that criticism. We get that criticism because we are directly uh, impinging on, on their income streams. Yeah, so the, the criticism we talk about, this was in 2018. Since then, did you see any change? Yes, I, I, think, I think there have been some changes. For instance, our biggest critic at the time in 2018 was the American Chemical Society. American Chemical Society, as you may know, derives millions from their subscriptions. And slow, they have been slowly moving towards open access. For instance, they have uh, joined our uh, system for transformative, our model for transformative journals just recently in the spring. So clearly also indicating that they want to move towards um, towards open access and towards uh, a gold uh, system because the transformative journal system is a system or a model that we devised to help uh, uh, journals uh, move from hybrid to uh, full open access in a very short period of time. 
And of course, we hope that they will be successful. As you already mentioned, the transformative journalist framework, uh, in our last episode, we have talked to Stuart Taylor about it. Stuart Taylor from the Royal Society. And he said that he did actually feel quite pressured to join Plan S, but also that you did not leave them alone and that you helped them with this transformative journal framework. But how is the transition actually managed? Because basically at the end, there should be a fully open access journal. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah. Is this mostly done through a reduction of costs or by increasing funding or something? Well, what we do, we, we, we say that uh, if, if, uh, if a journal or if an, uh, a publisher commits to the transformative journals uh, framework, then they have to meet all these KPIs. And in exchange, we will fund, we will pay for the articles in these journals. So it's basically an exception to hybrid. So as you know, we don't pay for hybrid journals, but we will pay for the hybrid journals that commit themselves to these transitions, to this transition, to this accelerated transition. And then, of course, the publisher has to make the calculation themselves to see whether this is interesting for them. Can you then keep up with the money they gain from subscriptions or is this also connected with a cost reduction? Yes, in, in principle, yes. In, so we, the, one of the conditions of the transformative journals framework is that they have to give us an insight in how their subscription is, is lowered as a function of increased income from, uh, uh, from the gold open access fees that they would receive. Uh, this has not yet quite been uh, achieved. We have not get, yet gotten insight to that, but this is definitely a condition going going forward. And we will kick out journals that do not conform to this to these conditions. Of course, I mean this year we gave them a reprieve um, because, of course, I mean some journals didn't didn't make it, make make uh, reach their goals. But next year we will be much harsher. Uh, and yes, I mean, you know, it's up to the, the publisher ultimately to to um, to achieve these goals or not. I mean, we can only say, look, this is uh, the ski. Uh, this is these are the conditions under which we will pay in hybrid journals. If you if you can't make that uh, for whatever reason, if you don't promote it enough, or, or, or then then too bad. But we. Uh, we we have some urgency in moving the entire system towards open access. And how high, more or less, is the percentage of publishers that did not give you the enough data this year? Oh, they, they gave us all the data. It's just that the data of uh, the, I think the, uh, there's a, there's a blog on our website. I, uh, you, you could, you could check that. Uh, they did, they did give us the data. It's just that certain, uh, uh, number of journals, for instance, of the, of the, of Springer Nature did not make the cut. I mean, uh, about half of them did make the cut, but a, no, a number of other ones did not, did not make, uh, meet their KPIs for the, for the, uh, um, um, yeah so we we hope that next year will be will be better um because we really want these journals to to move to full open access we will definitely uh put the link to the blog into our show notes yes thank you yeah it's a blog by my colleague uh, R robert kiley maybe we talk about something different because there was not only criticism from the publishers but also from the scientists themselves For example, in 2018, an open letter was published, which was signed by more than 1,000 scientists. And they said, 
I can quote, we expect that a large part of the world will not fully tie in with plan S. And I think this is somehow a valid point by that time. It seemed quite risky. Uh, the situation now has changed definitely, but would you say that plan S works only if it is implemented worldwide? Well, what we have seen is di different kinds of, of, of course, we are now 27 uh, research funders worldwide. Does not doesn't include India. Doesn't include the U.S. That is that is true. What we see, however, is when we talk to uh, people responsible in the U.S. and in India, is that they very much, um, even if they don't join coalitionists and, and planners, they are very much inspired by the policies that we are uh, developing, and they are clearly also aligning with them. So for us, it's not just a matter of all research funders in the world joining us, but also uh, exerting influence on uh, other research funders for them to adopt policies that were first devised uh, in, in Coalition S. And, and we see that happening. There's, it is likely that these, these countries will soon uh, announce policies that are much more in line with what we, are, what, what we are doing. Okay, but on this, now I'm curious, because there have been open access initiatives before. For example, if you look at Latin America, they have Cielo, which exists since 1998. And now they also have uh, a project called Amelie CA. Uh, America. Thank you very much for the correction. Yes, but these are different initiatives. These are not the same as Planes. Um, so Cielo and uh, Redalica America are platforms for publication. What, what we are doing is much more policy-oriented and research-funder-oriented. So the purpose is a little bit different. These other initiatives are there. Do you plan to expand Plan S, collaborate with them in a way, or even merge into a big global open access network? Well, uh, this is one of the things we are doing in, in, in uh, the Diamond Open Access projects that we are now launching uh, in Europe. Uh, we plan very much to collaborate with Cielo and uh, Redalica Medica on this because, of course, they have a lot of experience in Diamond Open Access. So we definitely intend to collaborate with them on a, on a global level, also with initiatives in the United States and in Canada. But this is something that will take shape in the next uh, three to five years. Uh, we, we now have received uh, the project money uh, to, to, to do this. Uh, we also have the Diamond Action Plan, as you may have seen. So the Diamond Action Plan is a plan where we ask different organizations to uh, sign and to become a member of the Diamond Action Plan community to help us move Diamond Open Access forward. Because, of course, if we want to make Diamond Open Access in Europe a force that is comparable to uh, Redalica Medica and Cielo in South America, then we need not only their help, but we will also need the help of various institutions in Europe, uh, universities, departments, individuals, to, to commit to this Diamond Open Access effort and to help us um, realize uh, an, a European network of uh, Diamond Open Access journals that can take its place along these uh, uh, important initiatives from so South America so that we can make a global network for, for Diamond Open Access, which I think is something that is long overdue. Okay, S sounds very inspiring. Well, um, as 
we were talking about the networks that you're in and as you already mentioned you have currently 28 uh, member organizations within plan uh, within the coalition s but uh, many more organizations showed their public support in some kind of way what is the difference between being a member and showing support does showing support even have any commitment to it? Uh, showing support means that there is a, an intellectual commitment. These are organizations that for one reason or another cannot become full members, uh, sometimes because they are not research agencies, but that they adhere to the spirit of, uh, of, of what we do. Uh, sometimes because they implement, they can implement part of Plan S, but not other parts. So there's various reasons why some uh, organizations are supporters rather than members. Uh, members have to be able to implement the, the policies that we have developed. So they have to commit that uh, all the money that they put into research will have research outputs that will be available in open access. And that's a big ask sometimes. Yeah, You talked a lot about diamond open access, which is surely very beneficial for the whole scientific community. And there is also another, I want to call it maybe type of publication. I want to talk about preprints now. And Plan S also has a clear point on on preprints. And yes. maybe you can, you can light out. Yes, we published a statement about that in the beginning of July. You may have seen this. Yeah. The statement was that we value peer-reviewed preprints. So what we said in that statement is that we see peer-reviewed preprints as a as an output that has the same value as peer-reviewed publications in a traditional journal. And I think that is a very important statement because it diminishes the importance of, of the journal as the unique venue of prestige and uh, on, on which you can be evaluated. We believe we did, we made these statements very specifically also to support all those initiatives like Peer Community In and Review Commons who provide peer review independently of publication. So basically this chops up the entire publication process into distinct and recognized uh, units. So there is a preprint server which hosts the paper and then there's the peer review service which can also be independent and provides peer review either for free or for a fee. Uh, like peer community in, for instance, organizes themselves for free peer reviews. And then the author can choose whether to submit that package of the preprint plus the reviews either to a journal or to a repository or to the journal or, or to a journal that accepts such uh, articles that already come with peer review. Again, we, we thought that was important because it fragments the services while at the same time permitting a quality control. There is absolutely no reason why the entire quality, quality chain of quality control should be in the hands of a single entity called a publisher. These are different services. Uh, hosting is a service. Peer review is a service. Copy editing and typesetting is a service. And these should be kept separate and also be paid for separately. Uh, as you may know, uh, some of our, some of our funders have, um, have already 
set up uh, services that work this way, like, uh, for instance, Welcome Open Research or Gates Open Research. And also the European Commission has now such a site called Open Research Europe. That would have been exactly the next topic, exactly. But yeah, maybe go on. These, these services practice what is called post-publication peer review. So basically, you publish on that site... Uh, which is basically a hosting service. And then when it is published, peer reviewers are sold, are, uh, are sold for this paper. Uh, the peer reviews are published alongside the, the initial version. And the author has a chance to make a second version on the basis of those, those peer reviews. These are models that are very close to Diamond in a way. They are a different model from Diamond, but they are similar to Diamond in the sense that they are free for the author and they are free for the reader. They are not yet as, as successful as I would, would hope they, they, uh, they, they could be, but I do think that this is a, uh, another interesting model to cope with the serials crisis, to uh, make uh, open access to publications quicker, to also keep publication in the hands of the research community, because in most of these cases, of course, uh, since it is research funders uh, having their own uh, publication venues. The only difference is, of course, that since these um, post-publication services are still owned by the, uh, the research funder, they are, for now, only open to people who receive funds from that research funder. And in that sense, they are not yet completely diamond, of course. They resemble diamond, but they are not diamond in the sense that they are not open to any scholar coming from anywhere. And But we have good hopes that that will also change in future. Do you also plan for the Coalition S to open such a platform like the Open Research Europe platform? Maybe not Coalition S in and by itself, but I, I do know that there are, uh, that there is a, that there are plans within the European Commission to make ORE wider than just the European Commission and to involve various research funders in Europe to, to, uh, to join ORE as their own funder. So these are plans that will become uh, clear in the next few years. But clearly the idea is to make this uh, more available than just to people who have an ERC grant. It's very clear to me that the, the, the major funders in Europe have understood that they have a responsibility to making research open access and that they, that they have to invest in that to make it, to, to make it possible. I think it would be very interesting to talk with you in two or three more years about these things again and see what has changed because I, I can see the writings on the wall too. I think things are changing in fact. And this brings me to my next point actually. Something we have not talked so much about with you yet but with our last interview guest Stuart Taylor. It is the assessment of the quality and the impact of scientific output. Uh, we talked with him about DORA and also Plan S, the principle 10 states that the true merit of the work will be considered and not the impact factor. I think this is great, but can you tell us what concrete measures have been taken to do this? Yes, like I said, Plan S is not a, a single policy that is imposed on every funder, right? So we le leave a lot of leeway to our funders to implement those, those ideas. So this is especially also the case for, for principle 10, where we have a, a basket of good practices that we, that shared and that 
each funder uses as they see fit. But for instance, the commitment there is very clearly that when funding applications are being considered, these DORA principles or Hong Kong principles are, are, being, are being considered. So for instance, that means that panels, selection panels are explicitly instructed not to look at the impact factor of the journals of uh, in in applications they're implicit they're explicitly instructed to look at uh, the, the 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 intrinsic quality of the work to so to actually read the articles <laughs> we also uh, increasingly um, funders at coalition s now use um, this instrument that is called the narrative cv so where people explain to the panel and to the evaluators what uh, what they think is their most important contribution to science and uh, I think these are important changes that allow for the change of research assessment at the level of the application. Of course, research assessment is a much broader movement than that. As you know, the Commission has now launched a, a coalition of 350 institutions that will implement research assessment also at the level of the university, so not just at the level of research funder. And that is going to be a very interesting project going forward. This is just... Uh, made official, as you know, over the summer. The text is, 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 has been finalized. And so there is a commitment there that, that, that also institutions will no longer just look at the articles that someone writes in a year, but will take into account a broader, um, a broader measure of, of research outputs, a broader me- measure also of contributions to science that are not limited to uh, numbers of articles and impact factors of journals that, that, that have been achieved. We need to move to a different way of assessing science because right now we have created a system over the last 20 years that is a rat race towards numbers of articles, numbers of impact factors. We have evolved towards a system that is a kind of a numerology uh, rather than a system that truly evaluates research for its contents and for the worth of the ideas. And that is the system that we have to move again towards. We have to evaluate ideas, not uh, not numbers. I agree with you, yes. Uh, maybe just one last follow-up question. Would you say that the funders are the main actors there who are responsible uh, to to change it or you also talked about institutions oh i very much think that it's the institutions that have to move in this space i mean research agencies can indicate uh, can indicate a road right i mean the, i think the reason that research ins- agencies were instrumental first here is that universe that research agencies are much more independent than universities research agencies are themselves not evaluated by anyone <laughs> almost Right? They are completely independent. Uh, universities are always looking at each other. They're always in competition. And so that makes it much, much harder to, to have innovative policies because you, as a university, you will always think, well, it's all nice and well if I implement this change, but what, what will the others think and how will that affect my standing with respect to these, these other universities? And so that again has to change. This entire idea of competition within, um, between universities and between researchers has to change. And th- this is a completely mad system that we have organized. I mean, we have to get rid of it. We have to make sure that all contributions are, are valued, especially also that re- re- reviewing is, is valued. This is something that, that, that has 
fallen to the wayside. But of course, you do not have publications unless you have reviewers. So if you don't value reviews, uh, you can't value publications because they will not happen. And, and this is something that I've seen, uh, especially in the last year, actually, there's a crisis of reviewers. I mean, you know, with COVID, people have realized even more than usual uh, that they have to make priorities and uh, yeah, the, their priorities is not uh, writing reviews for journals, I must say. And can, can you blame them? Because, I mean, the university is saying that it's unimportant. So so why would they do it? So I, I think we have to value that service again. Thank you, Johan. I think what we learned through all of our interviews is that science in general has to think about the publishing system and the system that they want for the future. Absolutely. But I am really impressed on the approach that you and the coalition took for the last years. You had the maybe unique opportunity to really make major changes and started to just push through. Well, now I have one last question for you from my side. And to settle this once and for all and to make this podcast historically relevant as the executive director of the coalition S, tell us. What does the S stand for? <laughs> um, the, 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 the answer is given in the, in the book by uh, Robert Jan Smits, I believe. I think he, I mean, he always said it was for shock. I think he finally admitted that it has stood for Smits. You know, it's convenient, shorthand. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, if you have to name it something. Uh, and it, it is true that Robert Jan deserves a lot of credit for uh, taking this initiative. I mean, he did this uh, before he retired. He could he could have simply gone uh, gone and played tennis, you know. I mean, and he took this, this very controversial initiative. He pushed it through. He put people around it. He, he, he willed it into life. He certainly deserves the credit uh, as far as I'm concerned. So do you. And I'm really glad that you were here talking to us. I hope you also enjoyed it. Yes, this very interesting questions. If you want to know more about the latest developments concerning Plan S, you can follow the Coalition S on Twitter at Coalition S underscore OA. You can also visit the blog on their website, which we will link in the show notes. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest episodes of the Labor ins Ohr podcast, you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at Labor ins Ohr. You can find us on every major podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to know more about this topic, you can visit our homepage laborinsor.de where you can find additional links and also our PayPal account where you can help us financially if you feel we deserve it. On the website you can give us public feedback under every episode but you can also write us privately on our email address contact at laborinsor.de If there is one last thing we forgot to ask or what you would like to say and highlight or now shout it out to the world hey This is something nobody talks about. Now is the moment, please. Oh, I think I said just about everything. I think <laughs> what I want that I wanted to say. I think what is very important is to realize. I think that academic publishing is a machine with a lot of moving parts. If you want to change things, you have to you have to think of all of these moving parts. But 
Also, it's important to know that as a researcher, you have a responsibility yourself as well. Every researcher can do basically what I did, you know, set up a diamond journal or contribute to a diamond journal, review for diamond journals, refuse to review for commercial publishers, for instance. We can all make our contributions towards better science by publishing open access, by retaining our rights. In the end, I think open access is an individual responsibility. And perhaps that's what I want to uh, uh, stop with. It's an individual responsibility. Thank you, Johan. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. This was the last interview in this series about open science for now. But apart from that, we already have a lot of ideas for upcoming seasons. So be sure to recommend us and subscribe to stay tuned and up to date. Goodbye. Thank you.